Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Thursday, July 27th. Today is a free-for-all. Anything goes. We've got an hour here this morning, so jump in quickly and join me. Those phone lines are open. Looks like calls are already starting to come in. 855-950-3835. I have a couple things I want to talk about this morning. Then we'll get to your calls and questions in the next hour. We'll be joined by Mike and Kevin Beckett. They'll be doing Rolling Toe. And then I'll come back at 10.15 for a free-for-all on Twitter. So full day today. Jump in and join us. Uh, Just a couple things I want to talk about. Um, I keep seeing these headlines, and I don't really pay a whole lot of attention to this topic. I've mentioned it a couple times. It seems like an awful lot, though. Four more ELDs uh, were just revoked. Um, I've mentioned that before several times. It seems like a lot of these ELD companies are just going away. I guess it's not surprising. We probably should have expected a lot of consolidation. There'll probably just be a couple big players in this, but uh, it's probably pretty frustrating if you have to keep changing ELDs. Um, The Teamsters have obviously been very busy. A couple of things going on. It looks like... Uh, Yellow is going to file for bankruptcy on Monday, seems to be the inside scoop. They're operating right now. The Teamsters are not going to strike uh, Yellow, but it looks like Yellow is going to go out. You know, I, I said last week when the Teamsters said, look, we'll, we'll continue coverage even if they don't make the payment. And that's what gave them a little more time. I, I thought, why bother? Uh but it really was a good idea. They're, they'll take this week, they've been taking this week, and I guess we'll see what happens on Monday. But they're getting the freight through their system. It's actually a good thing. I'm, I'm glad they're doing it this way. So my first reaction was, sheesh, why are we bothering to keep the zombie company alive? But if, if this was the reason to get the freight out of the system, from what I understand from their drivers, they're not picking up any new freight they're just delivering what's in the system. That's a good thing rather than than strand that freight. So uh, UPS and the Teamsters have come to a tentative agreement. What that means is that the Teamsters, I don't know what they call it, management or the negotiation board or, or whoever, it's the Teamsters themselves and UPS that came to this agreement. The union members now have to vote on that. They have until August 22nd is the deadline on the voting. I think the voting opens on August 3rd. So this isn't a slam dunk. I looked at the contract. It looks like a pretty darn good contract. So I thought this, you know, sure, they're going to sign this. Except, and look, this is just one person, one driver out of one terminal. But I've heard from a UPS driver that they really don't like this contract. Uh, he claims he's not signing it and says his whole terminal is claiming that. Again, it's one person. It re- it's really kind of meaningless in the big picture, but I was a little surprised by that. I wonder if that really is how the rank and file feel about this contract. Maybe they won't vote it in. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, what else did I have? Um, this is totally, well, it's a guess more of a health issue, but I'm reading this headline, North Carolina woman warns of vaping dangers after teen stepson's sudden death. We had no clue. Now, remember back in, I think it was 2020, I think it was right around the beginning of the pandemic, maybe it was earlier. Seems like we might have been dealing with it all at about the same time, but I don't know. But We had the big vaping issue. Remember several deaths? They kept talking about popcorn lung, which is what some of these chemicals that if they get put into a vape. um, If I remember right, I thought they came out and said it was like bootleg vape juice people were making at home and then selling on the internet. And it had, oh, I don't remember Maybe they were putting too much vitamin E in there. They were putting something in there that was causing this. And that stopped and it went away. Now, I thought there was something odd about that whole story back then. 
I actually started wondering if this was the uh, the big tobacco companies trying to eliminate companies like Juul that had really gotten a big head start on the vaping. But then the whole story just went away. Uh, the FDA banned all the sweet, fruity flavors of vaping, so they were trying to keep it away from the kids. And then we didn't hear anything about vaping now for a couple of years. I haven't really heard anything in the news about vaping. And all of a sudden, we have a death. Now, when you read this article, I'm not really seeing anything in this article that explained why or how vaping killed this kid. A lot of people still vape. They're not dropping dead in the street. They, they don't explain anything. They, they really make it sound like he just died because he was vaping. But I, I'm not going to say he couldn't have been vaping a lot, but his parents didn't even know he was doing it. Something is really odd about this whole story. I'm just wondering if this is going... Now, this was a young football player as well. Young athlete dies suddenly, and all of a sudden it's vaping? Is this just another excuse for the, the damage being caused by the vax? Is that... I, I just... You have to wonder, and are we going to start seeing more of this? Because if there's more of this, they're going to have to explain how vaping is killing people. And if it is, look, cigarettes are really bad for us. We know that. But I just never remember any story about anybody dropping dead at 15 years old because they smoked. Cigarettes are really dangerous. We know that. They're still legal. If vaping is so dangerous that a 15-year-old can just drop dead, shouldn't we know why? And if it's just that vaping is that dangerous, shouldn't it be outlawed? I'm not for a whole bunch of regulations. I think people should be allowed to do pretty much whatever they want as long as they're not hurting somebody else, which would include things like vaping and drugs and other things. But we shouldn't have products on the market that could just kill you that easily. We'll have to wait and see what... Uh, what comes out of this story. Like I say, it's not making a whole lot of sense to me right now. Um, let's go to Pennsylvania to get started today. Brian, welcome. Good morning. Well, um, full disclosure, uh, uh, that was a, a lose for the cheap freight guys and a win for the don't all cheap freight guys. My North Carolina load sort of, sort of screwed me. Um, I, uh, and, and this is partially my fault because, you know, do, do you want to guess how I got this load, Kevin? I logged onto the load board. What did I do next? <laughs> you sorted by rate, and then you started calling the people with the highest rate in that lane. Yeah, and the new DAT1 has this cool rate per mile sorting feature. So you can, uh, you can really kind of... You can go rate or rate per mile. So um, it's perfect so, for those guys who never haul freight under $4 a mile. This is a perfect tool for them. Yeah, I didn't see any of those. Yeah, Well, that um, means those guys can but, just uh, stay on vacation then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although this comes back to my comment about rate per mile being meaningless uh, without the length of haul. I. It, I sorted by rate per mile on kind of a general search going any, almost anywhere. Yeah. And most of the highest rate per mile loads paid less than a thousand dollars, which in my opinion, I don't like to waste my time with anything that doesn't pay at least a thousand dollars because you're going to end up spending all day on it. So you get it loaded, unloaded, right. blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, I went to, and I will name this shipper because I should have known better, but it's been too long since I've been there. <laughs> Nestle Purina Alpo on Pope Road in Allentown, 11 <laughs> minutes from my house. <laughs> I should have just went back home. Yeah. Uh, I am, I, I'm not a morning person, but I was there. I was there, checked in at 5.30 for my 6 a.m. appointment, and they got me out of there at 11, and I was supposed to be in North Carolina at Food Lion at 1900 that night. Oh, boy. And yeah. they're like, are you going to? Yeah. <laughs> they're like, are you going to make it? I'm like, 
I don't know. It's going to be really tight. So then later they're like, oh, don't worry. Right, come on. It's only three inches on the map. What do you mean it's going to be tight? Right. It's right there. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So they... Later, they text me. They're like, oh, don't worry. If you don't make it, we have you set up for 1530 tomorrow. And I'm like, wait a minute. Did you reset my appointment? <laughs> yeah, and I had a 9 a.m. pickup coming back. <laughs> and I said, well, well, wait, what, if I make... Oh, my God. I said, if I make 1900 are they still going to take me? Oh, yeah, yeah, but not a minute after, probably. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> so there I went, you know, 270, 495. I lost, like, all my time. And by the time I finally broke free around Ashland, Virginia, 80 miles an hour, the rest of the way to North Carolina. And, and I normally run 60. I've never ran that fast. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I hit the driveway at 6.59, and I'm like, yes, I made it. They, they gated me in at 7.02. I'm like, well, okay. Right. And then my gate pass had... My gate pass said appointment tomorrow, 1530. I'm like, oh, no. I I go to the receiving window. They're like, this is for tomorrow. Come back tomorrow. Like, no, 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 no. no. Stop. For tomorrow. Get out of here. So, so yeah, I I did almost a 34-hour reset in North Carolina. And I came back. I came back empty because my my mattress customer I already committed to a load last night, so I deadheaded all the way back (laughs) and did my mattress load. Just just take the rest of the week off and start fresh on Monday. That that's what I'm doing. I'm on my way home. Yeah, that's Um, a good idea. Take a long weekend. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I just wanted to weigh in on uh, Tuesday's transmission cooler temp thing did not say at one point he was running a transmission temp of 300 uh you know i remember that number but i don't remember the context i don't think so if he did i I would have thought we would have commented on that that seems a little excessive although if it's the oil we're worried about, we don't have to be worried about the oil itself at 300. It's fine. It won't break down. It's not hurting anything. My question, and I think I mentioned this, um, we're, we nobody seems to be aware of what part, what I would want to know about a transmission or any part that I was running hotter, where is the weak link in the transmission? What is the part that will fail first because of heat and what? how much heat is that? Maybe there are no parts in the transmission that would be affected by 300 degrees. I don't know. I I really think it would be fine. I just thought it was impressive. The, <laughs> yeah. The other, uh, the other thing that would happen is it would also start running your engine hotter. I mean, if you have that much heat in that transmission, they're bolted together. Uh, it, it's going to cause more heat in the engine, which again, isn't necessarily a bad thing. I, I think we're finding that on on all components, if we want maximum efficiency, we actually want to run these things at higher temperatures. We know higher temperatures are better for the emissions. It, it's, a, it's a mind shift. When we go back to other trucks, we, it used to be the opposite. We did everything we could to keep every component as cool as possible. And now we're saying, wait a minute, that... Um, that's just not the best way to do this anymore. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing Matt's probably going to probably listening and will answer these questions. My, my follow-up question to that, knowing that he did have a 308 gear ratio, I'm, I'm wondering, too, if he was achieving 300 degrees in the transmission, I'm guessing that was in 12th gear or, or 8 low. Right. Probably. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? Because that's, that's, yeah. And then if he went to direct from that, that's like, I could see why he dropped 50 degrees because <laughs> right. you, that's yeah. like a, you know, you know, your, your top overdrive is a lot more efficient than that split overdrive. Um, and then of course, direct drive your, your mechanical efficiency is another yeah. step better. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, um, 
Oh, my other, yeah, I don't, I don't think those temperatures are any worry. I mean, I always come back to John Walco's comment about not running an oil cooler on his son's race car. Right. And his, his, his oil temps were over 300 degrees and that's in the engine. Correct. Um, which I think, which I think is probably more delicate than a transmission or a rear end. And they ran that oil, I believe, the whole season, and he sampled it, and it was fine. There wasn't even any signs of oil breakdown. You know, um, if we see really high temperatures that are starting to cause some breakdown in the oil, we should see higher oxidation. That's usually what we're looking for in an oil sample. When I see high oxidation in an oil sample, my first question usually is, is something getting hot? And sometimes we don't know it. You know, you can have an oil temperature at, say, 240, a water temperature at 210, and think everything's fine, but engines can have hot spots that we won't pick up, you know, in the temperature readings, but that can cause damage like that. Like the ISX is known for hot spots in the oil or the fuel system, and that's why we get the asphaltine more in, in the ISX. Some engines can have hot spots where we're cooking the oil a little bit, but we're probably looking at really extreme temperatures when that happens and we would see it in oxidation. So it, we can watch for this. It's not even that hard. Right. Right. Yeah. I, and I may have mentioned this before back in the winter, um, my mechanic called me on a Saturday night and said, uh, your transmission coolers leaking and the, the only one I can get a hold of right now is $858. And I was like, eh, because when I had my cooler in, I could, I could barely register temperature on my gauge half the time. And my <laughs> gauge starts at 150. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard Joel talk about that whole, you know, uh, thermal management trying to run the transmission hotter. And I thought, we'll try this. And then I started doing the, you know, 100,000 pound dump trailer thing. And I was like, ooh, oh, I don't yeah. know if this is going to work. And I, I, it was fine. I still didn't hit my red line starts at 250. And as long as it didn't ding at me all day, I wouldn't have a problem running it right way past that. But, right. uh, but the hottest I got at doing that now, this was in the spring. We had some warm days, but, uh, some pretty warm days. I got it up to like 2:30, and yesterday or Monday when I was, you know, trying to get that load there, I still I only got it up to 2:30. Now I was I only had 30,000 on, but yeah, it's pretty. It uh, it's yeah. I don't I don't think most of us need a cooler. Uh, it probably not, and we can ask Matt because uh, he's here with us. Good morning, Matt. Yeah. Hey, Brian. How you doing? <laughs> morning. Um, Good. Well. well so I'll be good. I was just getting soon. in my truck, so I missed half of what you said in the beginning. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, did you say you had a transmission temp of three hundred before? Uh, not three hundred, but it would it would break two fifty on a hot oh, summer okay. day. And yeah, you were. Yeah. I did hear you about uh, gears. A thirteen speed running in twelve with the three oh eight. That's when I ran right. really hot, and then. When I did the uh, re-ratio and dropped down to direct in the transmission, lost about 50 degrees. Right. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. And I did hear you guys talking about what would fail. I honestly don't know either. I mean, I would assume the weakest link in transmission are the seals. It, that's what I was thinking. So, you I know, mean, that's the, not really a failure. You'd you'd end up with a leak, right? That's that seemed to me. If you start thinking about it, seals we know could be more affected by heat. If there's any kind of non-metal spacers or anything in, but I, I'm just not aware of much that should be affected by even 300 degrees. Yeah, and I mean I run in Kenworth too, but uh, my gauge 250. Well, technically, 250 has a green line on it yet. Anything above 250 is yellow. All the way up to 300, north of 300 is where it goes to red. Oh, okay. So I yeah, I really don't think 300 I, degrees is a concern occasionally. Right. I mean, I don't know that I want it there all day long, but 
I don't know yeah. that it would be horrible either. I, I kind of want to get mine over 250 just to see how much it freaks out with this. I, I don't know if it would ding or not. I, I couldn't handle the dinging. I could oh, do no. the red light. Yeah. Yeah, you just put a piece of tape over that. <laughs> and when it's, when yeah. it's, when it's dinging, yeah, just, just turn up the radio. There you go. Either, there you go. Either I don't have a warning for that or I've never set it off, so... Yeah, I'll have to look at my my cluster when I turn the key on and start the truck next to see if there's yeah. even a light for that. I don't think there, there you is. go. There you go. Well, my my final thought. I knew better about this too, but if you're if you're going from the Harrisburg area to the to the you know Richmond area and beyond, don't don't even don't listen to any any routing advice that tells you to take 270 to 495 it's never worth it just take 81 all the way down to winchester and get on 66 to 17 there you go <laughs> that there was part go. of my problem yesterday yeah yep. uh, but, i can uh, give you another good one you were heading west out of dc i believe it's us 33 brings you over oh, through virginia into west virginia I, i'd have to look at a map okay. it's been many years by now, maybe it's not so bad because I know that a lot of it was under construction, making it a four lane. But yeah, years okay. ago, pulling an end dump, that <laughs> looked like a nice short route coming out of Virginia once and heading into DC for a delivery. And oh, that was a long <laughs> night, up and down and round and round. And it's a good thing I only had a, a 40 foot end dump because I was in the other lane on most of them curves. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, it's good talking with you guys. I'll let you move on. All right. Sounds good. Anything else on your mind, Matt? Uh, no, other than that article you posted, I believe it was yesterday or a couple of days ago, they did a documentary about that guy in, I think it was New York City, but the guy with a straight truck and he's homeless, living in his truck, owner-operator. Uh, first off, it's not very clear it's a straight truck. Uh there's a lot of things about that article. I haven't commented on it yet. I said I would comment later, and then I decided not to. We've actually, somebody got a hold of the guy uh, and then said he's willing to talk to you. I made the offer. I'll go through his financials. I'll figure out what's wrong, and I'll work with him free. I'm not going to charge him anything. I'll work with him for as long as he'll continue to make improvements. So I, I'm going to, I haven't talked to him yet. I'm going to reach out probably today, although thinking I could use a break the rest of this week. Maybe I'll come back on Monday and do it. Um, I'm not taking any time off. I'm going to do the show today and tomorrow, but I don't know if I'm going to work a whole lot after the show. Uh, but I, I'm going to reach out to the guy and see. I mean, it, look, a straight truck makes it a little more difficult, uh, it, but it's not out of the question. If you own a straight truck and you're in business, you should be able to pay the bills and live a, a reasonable middle-class life. I mean, I've seen straight truck jobs that pay reasonably well. Uh, we're not going to hit $100,000. I, I really highly doubt that. But I don't see why I couldn't get somebody like that to 50000 And at 50000 you should not be homeless. Well, and you say what's odd is if you watch the video, you know, it's a, a straight truck without a sleeper. It's not a hot shot. It looks like a local delivery with a lift gate. But yeah, watching the video, I have way more questions than I got any answers. I, I, <laughs> Nothing made sense in it, there to me. My bigger point of this, and I guess I should have made the point more clearly, isn't necessarily the story. I mean, we'll figure out the story. If I can talk to the guy, we'll look yep. at his numbers. I'll figure out what's going on. And really, there isn't any reason you can't make 50000 local with a straight truck if you're good at it. It, it's a little more difficult, but it, I mean, this guy should not be homeless is my point. It's not the the economy's fault. It's not the business fault. It's not because he's an independent contractor. They try to make it. It's the articles that piss me off is with the point I'm trying to get to. Not this story. There's 10,000 stories like this. It's not even that big of a deal. 
What gets me is the reporting because it always makes it sound like these people are just being taken advantage of and we need more regulations. That's the feeling I get from these articles, that these people are just being screwed and they're taken advantage of. And that it's not true. I, I promise you, when I dig into the numbers, I will find why this guy is broken homeless. And it will be his fault, nobody else's. Let's just be clear about that. This, these kinds of stories are not anybody else's fault. It's not a broken system. It's people getting into business that don't understand business. And yeah, I, I don't, I didn't read the article. So I wonder if the article and the video are not even the same in the video. (laughs) Like I said, they created a documentary and there's this woman who, you know, created it, but then she interviews some guy that used to be an owner-operator, and now he's a lawyer, and it basically goes into the fact that because of deregulation, we're all out here working for less than minimum wage now. Uh, th- that That's the kind of storytelling that <laughs> pisses me, me off. Nuts, yeah. it, it, oh, c- please, let's not talk about deregulation, because people don't understand what regulation meant in in trucking and the airlines and the utilities. It meant that the government set the rates. It was pretty darn close to socialism. And yet we we talk about it like we want it to come back, like like doing away with that was a bad thing. No, it wasn't. It was a necessary thing. Trucking needs to be part of the free market, just like every other industry. I don't understand why we even talk about deregulation. Well, yeah, because they didn't even explain it right in the video. You know, they said, of course, you know, we're talking about the 70s. So if you had this lane or whatever you wanted to haul freight, all you had to do was submit to the government your cost is a dollar a mile. So they would allow you to charge a dollar six a mile. It, well, but that's not true. You didn't get it, though. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Right. You applied that's, for it, but uh, that's as far as it went, basically. You know, the one thing we try to, to explain to people is the trucking companies that had authority were worth millions of dollars more than what they were really worth on paper because they had the authority and you couldn't get it anymore. Nobody seems to understand that part of this, that yes, there were a lot of people that made incredible amounts of money with trucks during the regulated era, but it was not a free market. And if you weren't lucky enough to have that authority, you weren't making this kind of money. And the whole, at least they did say this in the article that it was good for the economy because it drove shipping rates down. What they don't explain is how inefficient it was and how many trucks were running around empty. Oh, they talk, haul freight. talk about bad for the environment. Holy cow. We, yeah. It, it, it's bad enough now we run empty because we don't have good enough logistic systems to keep trucks loaded. And that's what technology is supposed to fix. But the whole digital broker revolution that was supposed to fix all this seems to be collapsing. Most of the digital brokers are really struggling. We just had another one file bankruptcy surge. Um, that whole thing seems to be falling apart. The I don't want to say I told you so again, but um, I'm pretty sure I started this a long, long time ago. It's saying there will be no Uber of freight. Do you remember me saying that when everybody was saying we're going to be the Uber of freight? And I came out and said there will be no Uber of freight. And then later on, I said even Uber can't be the Uber of freight. They did not solve the problem in trucking the way they did in transporting people with cabs and, and Uber and Lyft and those kind of services. It didn't work. We're still seeing it fail. So that's bad enough that we run all these empty miles that we run today. But you go back then, the number of empty miles we ran was obscene. In the article uh, about the digital brokers, they gave us, you know, the revenue and the number of employees. I would like to see that compared to, say, C.H. Robinson or TQL or, you know, any typical broker that doesn't call themselves a digital broker. Now, the revenue per employee. Revenue per employee is a big number. I wonder if there's even a difference. 
I, we, I, yeah, I, it's going to be huge. I don't talk about that number a lot because in the owner-operator world, it's it's really not a good metric to even think about. Even if you have multiple trucks, the per employees is not a good metric in trucking. In a business like mine, it's a it's a metric I look at all the time. How do I stack up? How much revenue can I generate per employee? Because employees are my biggest expense. So I, I want it, to. It's kind of like maximizing the fuel mileage on a truck. We want to maximize the fuel mileage on each individual truck because that's a really big expense. For most businesses, maximizing maximizing revenue and profit per employee is a big expense or a big number you should be watching. And that was the point of digital brokering is tradit. Now, see, here's another thing a lot of owner operators don't understand. Why was digital brokering going to be such a big deal? The reason is it takes a lot of man hours to move one load. That's the biggest problem in the broker business is it is labor intensive to move those loads. This is why shippers don't have shipping departments anymore. It's too expensive. It's too labor intensive. They would rather outsource that to a broker. Let the broker deal with all those headaches and hire all those people to get all this work done just to move a load. And the whole business model in, in brokering is you have to move more loads. And the only way to move more loads is to do it faster and to do it with less people. And that's the challenge. And, and you know, the, the thought process in the owner-operator world, oh, they're just sitting around in their underwear with a phone and a, an internet connection and they're moving that's loads all day. It, yeah, try that once and see that, how well that works. That's what I was just going to say. Uh, obviously, you know, the guys that call and complain or, you know, go on these uh, protests about brokers, they have no idea how a brokerage is operated. Right. It, it's The ones that I visited, that is a stressful, oh, high-intense job. It is, you, they work for their money. You walk onto one of those floors, you feel the tension. You know, it's, yep. it's it, in some cases, in some days, it's almost like what you see on Wall Street with the traders, how frenetic it gets. M- moving freight with yep. brokers is not an easy task. There's phone calls and tracking and there's always a problem and I, just on and on and on. And that's why so much money has been thrown at this whole digital brokering thing. And it, it's really not paying off yet at all. And here's the other thing. We could probably go pull numbers from C.H. Robinson, but there are really no big brokers left that aren't also digital brokers when you really think about it. C.H. Robinson may not be considered a digital broker, but they have just as many or more digital tools than Convoy. Oh, yeah. they. I mean, you can run basically everything through their app right and never talk to a person yeah they they have the same your regular carrier for them right and and and, you know i think what happened was the digital brokers thought they were going to revolutionize this with their technology they didn't really understand trucking i can promise you that because every one of these not every one most of the big ones contacted me at some point I, I've talked with, I've I worked pretty closely with Convoy for a while, made several trips up to Seattle, um, and I've worked with C.H. Robinson. Um, they Their problem was they didn't understand trucking. It's why they brought me in. They didn't understand owner-operators. They didn't understand the model. And what happened, I think, was it was much easier for C.H. Robinson or any of the big brokers or Landstar or any of these companies, it was much easier for them to adopt the technology than it was for the digital brokers to try to learn trucking. C.H. Robinson has over a hundred years of experience. And it was easy for them to get the tools that the digital brokers had. The technology is fairly easy and cheap. So I think what happened was these digital brokers came in, they failed to revolutionize and then they got beat by the traditional brokers that just used the same tools, but had more experience. And that's why I think you need to get Reed to come on this show 
and do a kind of an interview with him. So Reed is he's on Twitter. He's in quite a few of the spaces uh, for people that haven't listened to one of those. But well, I suppose it's pretty easy. You can listen to it on this app. So yeah, you should have listened to him by now. Right. A lot of um, people have probably have heard yeah, him a couple uh, times. Yeah. Yep. I and, think that is kind of the solution to this what we call digital brokering their their issue because they don't realize the the only way digital broking works very well is on regular customers and regular carriers right for these one and done guys which is the majority of brokered freight it just doesn't work no you 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 lose this and this is the problem with the one and done you lose so much time on every load you keep doing this on. Nope. You, you will be far, far more efficient in time. May, hey, Matt, the the people yep. who can't figure this out, can't figure out the relationship part of this, the, you know, sticking with a couple of good brokers and really building that, that relationship. I'm going to make a general statement. Those most of the time are the same people that think running 75 miles an hour everywhere you go is more profitable. Would that be a, a fairly good general statement? I would assume so. Don't the two kind of go hand in hand? If you would stop wasting so much damn time in your operation, you wouldn't have to drive so fast. No. It, I just heard this on a podcast. You know, the old saying running around like a chicken with your head cut off. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, years ago, everybody knew what that meant. In today's society, a lot of people probably don't. <laughs> you know, the family That's farm true. is gone, and right. most people have never seen a chicken butcher, <laughs> so they don't know what that really <laughs> means. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, I never thought about that. But, yeah, that's... Yeah, that's that's just running around, calling a different broker every day. Onboarding. And, you know, all these hundreds of onboarding that is running around like a chicken with your head cut off. Yeah, right. And then you are going to have to drive fast because you're wasting so much time everywhere else. Oh. Yeah. Um, so, I, get, yeah. I think getting getting read on here, though, you know, and doing a, an interview instead of just the, the spaces thing. I think that's a good idea. You know, we're, we're really um, I, just recently we've made two new relationships that can go a long way towards solving this problem. And I'm excited about them. I am. I haven't made it happen yet, but I, I got to get on this. I'm going to be introducing Reed to David Owen. At Nastic, let's put these tool two, nope. two tools together. Nastic has their list of what they call vetted brokers, brokers that they've worked closely with. It, what they've done with their program is exactly what I was trying to do with Broker Connect. Find the brokers, help owner operators understand their system, what kind of freight they really specialize in, help the two come together and start talking and build relationships. And that's really what David has done over at Nastic with his broker group. And now we can take a tool like Reed's, combine it with this curated or vetted list of good brokers to work with, and then let people build their little network and use this tool to communicate with their network. That's a really good system. Yeah. And just to give the very short, overly simplified, Reed has a website where you as a carrier would report where your trucks are getting empty. They will go out and search and notify brokers that have freight in that area. So instead of searching for loads, you're posting your trucks and where they're going to be empty. One of the things you and I both know, somebody listening right now is going, oh, screw that. I'm not posting my truck. I don't want every broker out there. It, it, this was really bad, you know, last year. It's not such a big deal this year. Your phone's no. not going to blow up the way it used to. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize that. Remember, a lot of people have never been in a freight recession yet. So they don't know that, that those kind of things well, change too. You could post your truck now and it's not going to get blown up with broker calls like it might have a year ago. But this is a different system. We're not just posting on an open load board. We're posting our 
capacity to our group of brokers only, and you get to pick that. It might only be two brokers that see your capacity of where it is. It could be 10 brokers. You get to control that. But the idea of constantly letting your small network of brokers know where you are, where you're going, it allows them to go work for you to find freight for you. And they want to. They love finding freight when they know there's already a truck waiting or knowing that they can take care of their customer because they know where your truck is. This really is a good system. And and we're going to work with these two to try to bring this together. Yeah, there's a lot of room for improvement in the whole transportation. Absolutely. And the brokerage side of it. And and definitely on the, the problem is I think a lot of these small carriers expect somebody else to solve it. You know, here's. When when you let somebody else do your job. Exactly. (laughs) You end up with a poor quality result. Right. So I think being proactive. I just thought of another advantage to a system like this. I am a big believer in, you know, we should use the power of the internet. The internet has a lot of downsides, but there's there can be some upsides and we should use them as much as possible. One of the things I love about the internet in general are reviews. I read reviews of books. I read reviews of products. Now, there's an art to reading reviews. One, you got to read a lot of reviews. I, here's how I do it. it, it let's, Amazon's one of the really easy systems. Um, I will first read all of the one-star reviews. I want to know who's really pissed off and hates this, whatever it is, and why. Most of the time, I find really, really petty reasons for giving one-star reviews, honestly. And then I'll go read all the five-star reviews. I read the best and the worst. I skip the middle. There's almost nothing to be learned in the middle. So I read the best and the worst. I love reviews. I think they're powerful. Um, I've thought about the idea of reviewing brokers, you know, a website or an app, and there may be some out there that probably are. Um, they're not getting popular, and I know why. There's too many brokers. Right? What are it, like 16,000? The numbers, I can't ever remember them, but there's way too many. It will take years to build up any kind of good review system that would work. I mean, so many of these brokers have never been reviewed so it, it, the, the whole review thing kind of doesn't work in the broker world. But under this model, it certainly would. David's only, I think David has less than 200 brokers on his list. Now we could start a review system yeah. and, and it, would, it would become valuable pretty quickly. Look, if I ever started a review system for brokers in a system like this, I would damn well start a review system for the owner operators as well. That the whole point of this is accountability for everybody, make everybody better. Yeah, and I love the way David explained it when you were talking to him about this. He said, you know, hey, guys, well, I don't use brokers. Well, what do you do when you get empty up here? Well, I call (laughs) Joe. (laughs) Right, I know. I got the same thing. I mean, when I first kind of ventured off on my own trying to make this happen. Oh, hey, Matt. I mean, I was Matt, under my I, own authority. I'm, yep. I'm cutting you off right now. Sorry. I'm not paying attention. I have uh, 14 minutes left, and I have a bunch of calls I have to get to. Uh, oh, good. Thank you, Angie, for suspending the calls for me. Let's uh, let's go to Massachusetts. AJ, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin. How you doing? Thanks good. For my, thanks for taking my call. What's on your mind today? I guess I'll make this uh, short today. I just wanted to go over my, just wanted to have you take a look at my numbers and uh, make sure there's nothing I didn't miss or look over. Everything's yeah, um, I was looking at these a little smooth, earlier when they came across. Um, good numbers. Congratulations. These are uh, really good numbers, considering we're, we're supposedly in a freight recession. Except every time somebody yep. calls me with their numbers, I look at this and go, this isn't a freight recession at all. This is still one of the best years I've seen in trucking with these numbers. I'm going to say the people that are doing these kind of numbers are all using profit gauges. Maybe there's a correlation. That could be. It's easy to see where you need to improve, where you need to. Uh, I, you know, um, let, let's just and... let's just get to the nitty gritty that the top line, what everybody else calls the bottom line. We put it on the top. Profit per mile, profit per mile of a dollar twenty-three. That's pretty incredible. Yep. 
considering that Landstar and uh, the numbers aren't that great over here either. But um, so you got this. Your gross run. per mile, all miles, two dollars and twenty seven cents a mile. Congratulations. That's an excellent number to be getting in this market. Yep. And then you've done an, a really good job yep. of controlling your expenses. Man, I, you know, here's the nice thing about doing this this profit per mile thing. Um, it's a quick calculation to say if you drive 100,000 miles a year, which is less than the average driver does, if you drive 100,000 miles, we know how much you're going to profit. You're going to profit $123,000 this year on 100,000 miles. Right. That's pretty incredible. You know, I... I I saw something in the, the UPS contract, and I got to go back and figure out if, if I'm doing this right. I was just doing the math in my head. I saw that their their new rate is going to be $49 an hour for their top drivers. Doesn't that sound insane? $49 an hour. That's, but That's pretty high, yeah. Let's do a little math. And I'm going to do this on 40 hours a week because for most employees, that's a standard work week. I know it's really not in trucking, but if you think about this, Let's just call it $50 an hour because the math is easier. 40 hours a week, if I'm thinking about this right, that's $2,000 a week, right? Yeah. That means the top driver at UPS in a 40-hour week is only going to make $100,000, $104,000, which that's nice for a 40-hour week. Don't get me wrong. And I know you're probably working a little more than that, but... You're going to make significantly more than the top Eamster driver after this contract. Yeah, it's running all day, three day, three day run twice a week or six days out on the road. But since it's near my house, I get home. Yeah. Thursday but, night, go back out it, Friday. So I'm able to drive home. I just these stack are, my car nearby at the shipper. And, yeah, these are excellent numbers. All right. Very good. Yeah, I couldn't. I just want to thank you because I, you know, I did all the things you said to do for several years before I even started. I got this truck in 21 and uh, April, at end of April, and had the title in the safe at home. Excellent. Since day one. And Excellent. I think that helped, that helped a lot. So but I just, you know, listening to you, I want everybody to, to keep, you know, it. sometimes it seems a little crazy, but I, when you put it into it works. practice, it's not so much. It works. Congratulations. Yep. Great, great stuff. Let's, uh, let's go to Pennsylvania. Wade, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin, you got another call or am I last one? Uh, no, I've got two more after you. Okay. I'll see you on Twitter. Okay, perfect. Thanks. Appreciate that. Let's go to Saskatchewan. Merv, welcome to the program. Merv, what's going on? I, uh, all I hear is silence here. Uh, there you are, Kevin. There you are. What's on your mind today? Hello. Yeah. Hi, I'm calling about uh, HRV mostly. Um, I've got the the watch, and I've been watching my HRV scores, and they're very low. Um, Give me a number. And I, I'm not sure how to compensate to look at those. Uh, my lows are below 40, and my highs are below 100. Give me your uh, average. My average right now is 35. Okay. 35. So I can feel your pain. I've gotten down into the low 30s several times with all of the biohacking I do and, you know, testing. And and I'm there now. Actually, I'm back up into the 40s. I'm starting right. to feel better. Uh, but I was down there again. It's a bad place to be. And it's not easy to get out. One of the things I'm trying this time, I'm trying something different this time. Um, I, this is the first time in years I have no wearables on at all. My Garmin watch is off, has been off for about a week. I'm going to see if I can pull out of this without the watch, without having all that data. Can I do it just based on the way I feel? And the way I've right. been doing it for the last couple of years that I've been working on the stress protocol is I use that HRV religiously to get out of the hole. And, and the way I use it is if my HRV is low this morning, today's going to be an easy day. I mean, I just, I got to kind of take it easy. I may skip the stress protocol. 
Uh, I may do more things like meditation until I can get that HRV up a little bit or my body battery up a little bit. When I have a good day, HRV and body battery wise, that's when I go hit the stress protocol hard. And the better day I'm having, the harder I'm going to do it. That's when I can start to build that stress muscle. But I can't do that on days when my HRV is too low. I'll just make things worse. So that's why and how I use HRV in the watch. Now I'm going to try to see if I can figure out how to do it as well without knowing those numbers. Just trying to figure out, do I feel good enough today to do a workout? And I'll check in with my HRV maybe every 10 days just to see what's happening. So how do we get it up? First off, when we're this low, we are probably going to have to have some periods of rest where we just get away from stress completely. We just kind of chill out. Uh, it, it, it's almost necessary when you've gotten this low. Then when we can build back that body battery and we, we have a better night with HRV and we wake up feeling better and our numbers look better, we need to hit that stress protocol. Those four things are the things that will work to get your HRV up as quick as possible. I do have a device that can do it. Uh, it's fairly expensive. It's seven or $800. It's a headset. Uh, it, it actually does it. it. It's one of the few devices I've found that if you use it regularly, it will raise your HRV alone with not doing any of the other stress protocol. And if you add the stress protocol to this device, gets even better. Uh, I'm not ready to release the name of the device yet. Uh, I still have a little more testing to do. But th those are the ways. And we can get this up. I mean, I I've taken it from the low 30s back up into near 60 in about 60 days. Right. And I've never gone past I, that. I, I always go back to biohacking again, and then I get my down so I can work on getting it back up. Um, this time I'm kind of committing to, to just sticking with this and no more biohacking for a while, no new testing. I'm just going to stick with the stress protocol. I, I will be testing this device a little more. Uh, and I'm just going to stick with it and see how high I can really get my HRV. Where could I be six months from now if I stick with this? Okay. Yeah, I basically am using the HRV number in that way. Like I've had the watch now for, I guess, about six months. And um, so I am using it that way. Um, so that's good information. The other thing I was at wondering about is ketamine, uh, what your opinion about it is. I've seen some studies that compare HRV scores to those who've been tested on ketamine. So I have Any some opinions. opinions I, I think there's some potential here. Um, there's a lot of work being done right now with, with psychedelics is the group of drugs we're really talking about. Uh, Technically, cannabis falls into this category. Acid, LSD, ketamine, um, ecstasy, uh, all of these drugs have a, and there's another word other than psychedelic I'm trying to think of, and it's not coming to me right now. What we're talking hallucinogenic uh, hallucinogenics exactly thank you these these are these are a group of hallucinogenics these are drugs that have their their biggest impact is on our mind when you look at drugs like uh, fentanyl heroin the biggest impact of those drugs is on your central nervous system they 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 slow down your breathing there's a big physical response to those drugs and somewhat of a, a mental response as well. The hallucinogenics have very little physical response. The other group we could look at are amphetamines, cocaine, um, crack, uh, meth, caffeine. Those are, are uh, drugs that accelerate your metabolic systems. They have a tiny effect on your mind, not a lot. You, you don't really take cocaine and get high. You don't, you know see things or have hallucinations or uh, you take cocaine and your your metabolism speeds up you have lots of energy your brain thinks clearer on amphetamines but this group of hallucinogenic drugs has almost no physical impact on the body it's not really changing a lot of things physically but it really has a huge impact on the mind 
I mean, they're called hallucinogenics. You can actually see things that aren't there and you can have auditory hallucinations and, and you get high. There seems to be a lot of correlation between microdosing these drugs. We're not talking about taking a, a big enough hit or a, a big enough dose that you feel the hallucinogenic effects. We're talking about small doses that you don't even really feel. That's one method, and it seems to work for some of the mental health issues. Anxiety, depression, PTSD. There seems to be really big improvements quickly, and the improvement lasts a long time. Sometimes one dose, and, and people have been seeing improvements for up to six months with some of these things. So there's a lot of promise, and some states have legalized this. Oregon is one of them. Oregon or decriminalized a lot of these drugs, so you could start doing this, and there are psychiatrists doing it. And if we go back to the 50s and 60s, when we first discovered these drugs, they were legal and they were being used for this. This is not new. This, this is 50, 60 year old uh, science. We just stopped doing it because all of these drugs were made illegal. So now there's some experimentation. Again, there is another use where they do give you a big dose. It's almost like going on a journey they do a lot of this with ayahuasca. There are ayahuasca ceremonies. Um, one of the people we've had on our show, uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank on his name right now, and I'm looking over on my bookshelf because I know I've got his book over there somewhere. Uh, Paul Check. Uh, Paul Check uh, is a practitioner. Like I, I've thought about even contacting Paul and, and maybe trying this, doing an ayahuasca journey and see what happens. I'm curious about it, but there, there is a lot of uh, work being done around this. Now, before I could ever tell somebody, boy, you should really try this ketamine or, you know, ayahuasca, it's pretty awesome. I, I would never make recommendations like that if I haven't experienced it myself. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I'm a little concerned about it um, because I did try dosing with psilocybin and maybe I got a little greedy, but uh, I did have some not so good experiences on it. Hallucinogenics can be pretty scary. In the past with it, right? Yeah, hallucinogenics yeah. can be pretty scary. I, 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 you know, I'm pretty transparent. I talk about this stuff all the time. It's been a long, long time, um, but I did experiment, play around with acid for a while. A couple times, less than five, I'm thinking maybe three or four times. Um, most of it was actually pretty enjoyable. Um, one of them got a little out of control. There's a little anxiety and some paranoia, and um, that can be pretty common with hallucinogenics. And really, if you're going to do this, I, would, I wouldn't do that again. I really wouldn't. If I were to try this, and, and I might, I, I would work with a practitioner. Yes, exactly. And and that's what I'd like to do. I'm not sure who to contact. Like, I mean, I can't go to my family doctor. Right, they, right. They don't, um, seem to, they don't seem to think the same way, right? Other, so, other than doing a lot of searching and asking a lot of questions, I'm not sure how I would find, uh, you know, I might reach out, like I said, to Paul Check because I have that relationship and ask him. Um, and maybe I will. I mean, it's it's not on my list of things to get to anytime soon, but it has been on my list. But I, I think what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to just do a lot of searching and asking a lot of questions. Find somebody in your area. Right. Okay. Because this is something right. that really needs to be okay. done in person. Yeah. If you're going to work with a practitioner on this issue, it, it it's done in person. I agree. Yeah. So if I come across any okay. other resources, I'll certainly yep. let let everybody know. Yes, absolutely. All right. Great. Thanks for the Thank call. You. We are going to grab one more quick call here. Won't take long because it's an oil sample and I've already reviewed it. And then we can get on to rolling toe. Brad, are you with me? Yes, I am. All right. Um, I'm going to make a quick recommendation. I think there is absolutely nothing wrong with your truck based on this oil sample. Ignore all those yellow blocks over in the upper right. Totally meaningless. Uh, your lead just crossed over to 15, which put it at a, a level two. Uh, this, say you, but you also have 150,000 miles on the soil, right? Yeah, 154,000. Um, yes. I, flip a coin here. The silicon just went over 11. That one concerns me a little bit. 
Um, I, I would say let's just change it. You you could run this oil another round, but I think you got your money out of this one. I think I'd go ahead and change it. That's what I was figuring on doing. I mean, I do go through a gallon of oil every six thousand miles or so, but which is at it, eleven, I'm yeah, just much rather change it. That that helps you get to this hundred and fifty thousand because you're refreshing it. But the the if the silicon was still under 10, I would tell you to go one more round. Nothing else in there worries me at all. Once we go over 10 on the silicon, it's time to change it. Yep. I uh, think the lead is creeping up again because at uh, 2.3 million miles on the block. Right, right. You're, even you're, though I replaced the bearings. Yeah, you're going to get some buildup of lead. So, but I'm not too concerned about that. That's a pretty low number for how many miles you have on this oil. Lead, all all wear metals build up over time. There's no way around it. So that lead number yes, doesn't do. concern. Right. Yeah, the lead number doesn't concern me at all. It's just an accumulation, which is what happens uh, when you get to this point. You got 150 thousand miles on your oil. That's awesome. All right, we're gonna wrap this up. Rolling Toe will be back in less than five minutes. Don't go away. Be safe. Oh, and then I'll be on Twitter at 1015 for a trucking free-for-all. Join me there. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.